1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Okay. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You're here with me today, Charlie, taking up the reins because we are going into the 17th century, which, as you know, is where I like to hang out. And because today's guest is going to give us a little bit of something boaty, there was only one man I could think of to join me, and that is the wonderful Mr. Chris Sams. How are you doing today, Chris?
4: I'm good, Charlie. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Oh no, I'm really, really happy to have you here to join me in um, in this this wonderful nerdy boat fest. Um, who have we got joining us today, Chris?
4: Okay, um, so yeah, today we have um, John van der Kist, uh, who's going to be with us, to um, and he has specialised in researching and writing biographies of British uh, royals from the Stuarts through to the Hanover, up to Victoria, as well as... Um, other nations such as Germany, Greece, Austro-Hungary and Russia as well as other subjects and he's here today to talk to us about his new book, James II and the First Modern Revolution.
3: Hello John, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: <laughs>
3: so <laughs> there we go, we've got you. in. So to get started um, we're going to talk about James before he was king for a little while. So In his early years before the Restoration, James was quite a lad when it came to his military escapades um, and also the diplomatic intrigues during his exile. How did these experiences mold him into the king he would become?
5: Well, first of all, he was always very eager to learn, and he was quite amenable to discipline in his early years. Right from the time he was a small boy, he had a high regard for order and routine, which suited mm. him very well for military life. Uh, he was also you know, quite brave, quite resourceful, and he was perfect soldier material. Another interesting thing to bear in mind about him was that you know, he was only a boy when this gilded uh, existence around him came crashing down. He realised that something was very wrong. There were external forces threatening his father and... Uh, 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 quite early on, he was he was moved up from Whitehall to Hampton Court, where he's going to be a little bit safer, and then eventually moved to York. So he was a uh, not exactly a fugitive, but he was you know being shunted around uh, rather against his will. Uh, so he realised that uh, uh, life was certainly not cosy, even though he was born to the purple, and that you know a soldier's life would obviously help to keep him, make him very quick-witted, keep him one head one step ahead of the game, mm. and. Uh, Ahead of the enemies that were obviously, you know, threatening his existence and and that of his family. As regards to the you know, diplomatic intrigues, you know, he was obviously used to being being on the run and sprouted away from England in 19, in 1648 into Holland. Uh, so, so he realised that uh, you know the landscape could shift, you know, pretty quickly under him.
3: Gosh. So, I mean, in terms of his his upbringing and his sort of fit fit for military uh command he's made Lord High Admiral at the age of five I understand
5: uh, yes of course a purely an honorary host but yes, <laughs> it did it did give him a sense that you know, he was destined for you know, great responsibilities in the country you know, in the years to come
3: gosh and he so learns
5: he, school from it, school from it oh, well yes at the age of five uh, <laughs> <probably a possibility. laughs>
3: it's a it's a crazy thing to think of now yeah but of course yes the, the role was purely titular at that point but after when he's in exile with with his brother so charles is you know he he's hoping that he might be able to get his his crown back but james ends up being a little bit of a a soldier of fortune doesn't he he fights under general turenne for the french and then then he has to fight with the Spanish when, when the English ally with Spain and it's it's all very confusing.
5: Well it was indeed and I suppose this prepared him very well for for you know whatever happens, happens, he's got to be ready to meet it. And he was well aware during the protectorate in England that if the throne was not restored to his family and his brother, then he would probably have to end up becoming a professional soldier, a soldier of fortune, sort of more or less a, a gun for hire. With uh, any European head of state um, who, who would have him. Now, I I,
3: I study Charles quite a lot, John, so I I know that there were there's sort of speculation that uh, Charles was quite envious of James's military prowess. And it's this great story about how, having fought with Turenne and having fought with the French, he he came up against the French when he was fighting for the Spanish and the, the commander actually let James and his men go because they'd fought with him and they knew him and they, they weren't going to run him through.
5: That's right, yes. James is much more the, the military-minded side. I think maybe there's a, a case of Charles being sort of, well, Charles is naturally rather more easygoing personality. And I think he felt that uh, as long as things go reasonably our way, I stand a jolly good chance of uh, being restored to my father's throne, which he was. So he was a figurehead who would just uh, sit back and uh, let everybody do the work around him, in a sense. And uh, James was the the younger one who wasn't going to be king straight away. So uh, obviously the responsibility of becoming a soldier fell upon him.
4: He he also got offered the uh, position of admiral in the Spanish Navy as well, just before the um, Restoration. Wow. That's
5: right, yes. yes he, um, yeah, had, yeah. Since it's gone differently, than, yes, he, yes, he may very well have ended up in, in the employ of the Spaniards,
4: yes. Because that was just before the Restoration and he, he turned it yeah. down, which bounced quite nicely. But sort of following the Restoration, James causes, causes a bit of a scandal by marrying Anne Hyde. Um, who was a commoner, and despite being devoted to her and her children, he kept uh, several mistresses, including a Churchill, and uh, was referred to as Pepys as the most unguarded ogler of his time. We've all met that guy. <laughs> but um, how does this stack up against his uh, religious um, religious sta- stance and piousness?
5: Well, he yeah, was a bit of a personality, I suppose you could say. There was a possibly a bit of a sense of... Um, uh, a medieval or sort of before some time, Rasputin character about him. You know, this old joke about so, you know, if you're going to go to confession and confess your, si- confess your sins, well, first you've got to sin. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed that he, he just did not uh, equate you know, being a, a good Christian, being a good Catholic, yeah, well, yeah, being a good Christian with you know, being totally moral above reproach and. Also, a lot of people at the Stuart Court, a lot of lot of men were, were really pretty unfaithful to their wives, and I suppose in in that day and age, it was just accepted that there's one rule for men, one rule for women. But they did regard James as being possibly the one of the least moral of, of the lot, you know, judged by well the number of different mistresses he had. Although he also had a wife at the same time.
4: It's possibly a bit ungenerous, but there was a, a remark about how um, his mistresses were. And be diplomatic say far from beautiful as well. And uh, there was a thing, a comment about um the king was punishing himself by uh seeing them.
5: Oh yes, well yes, you do get the impression that uh, you know he, he he just wasn't that fussy, either that or else. Oh, how do you put it politely? But so yeah, he was, he, he was just up for it all
3: the, all the time. <laughs> but, <laughs>
5: <laughs> That's probably the closest way of putting it.
3: Uh, those brothers, they uh yeah, they uh, they did have that much in common. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, but Anne Hyde, I mean, the, there was a big controversy because they they were married in secret, weren't they?
5: Yes, the oldest child, the son, was the one who, who died quite young, but you know, they had to make sure that uh, you know the marriage was you know all done and dusted first.
3: Did a, he did a few things in secret, did our James, um, biggest of which, I mean, we could we could almost set aside the marriage in secret of the Duke of York. He converted to Catholicism in secret. Now, this is this is a time where anti-Catholic suspicion and exclusion were just par for the course. So it must have been a part of him that thought what he was doing was a bad idea or, or ill-advised in some way. Did he have any sense that he was risking his, his entire future by converting?
5: I don't really think so. And I think he just felt that you know, he was invincible. He was the king's brother. He was almost certainly going to become king one day and you know, he felt that you know, to a certain extent he could make the rules himself and you know, do, do what he jolly well wanted to. <laughs> um you no know, he was you no know, he, he was uh, very much pro-catholic inclined you know from adolescence and he'd been very impressed as a boy by the devotion with which the catholics worshiped god and he came come to realize that they were not the reprobates that uh, the english protestants were trying to portray them as mm. and you know, somehow he he did slightly take against the protestants at the, this point and I think he felt that they, they just weren't really taking their religion that seriously. And, you know, being a very earnest-minded man himself, you know, he really thought that, that uh, the Catholics were the regal deal, I suppose.
3: He he does seem to have been a very serious and stubborn individual. Do you, th- do you think that's fair or do you think that's just sort of what people have painted him as?
5: I think that's, that, that's very fair to say. We get the impression that he was rather humourless and that you know, he, he just totally lacked uh, his brother Charles' lightness of touch. I mean, Charles for nothing is not for, not for nothing known as the Merry Monarch. <laughs> and he was uh, he was uh, very laid back, much more relaxed, had much more of a sense of humour, and uh, you know, didn't take life quite so seriously. Now, James was the exact opposite in that.
2: Gosh,
3: they came from the same place. It's crazy.
5: <laughs> well, quite often, you, you found you. you, 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 know, you you get to get one person who's a joker and the other one who, you know, who takes it all so seriously. And and uh, just the same, same kind of thing,
3: really.
5: Mm. <laughs> uh, um,
4: I know we, we've mentioned it already, but um, James also held the, still held the position of High Admiral, which puts him in charge of the Royal Navy, notably during the uh, Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars. And we remember the Medway, especially I remember the Medway being a Gillingham oh, yes. local. But um, we also have uh, four da- the four days battle and the battle of Texel, and they're all going against England. Was would it be fair to say that his tenure as C and C of the navy was a bit of a disaster?
5: Well, I, th- I think that's quite fair to say. You know, he, he couldn't be blamed obviously for the the fact that, well, in simple terms, you know, the, the Dutch were really rather superior to the British. But you know, he had been appointed Lord High Admiral to come and uh, help to reorganise the Navy which had been very much neglected over the you know, the last few decades and so you know, he had quite a huge job ahead of him but he was also a sort of unofficial head of the, the war party in Britain and you know, when the Dutch were threatening British trade then you know, he was very much uh, come and let's, let's go for it for the fray, let's go and t- take the Dutch on and the Navy weren't really ready for it and uh, just paid the price and in fact the Medellin raid in 1667 it was not only a great success for the Dutch but it was also one of the worst defeats that the British Royal Navy ever suffered and you know, he was very lucky you not know, to be blamed for it mm. I think everybody just took the common sense view that uh, well it was just it was just misfortune anyway rather than down to any fault of his own but the person who really uh, caught the blame took the blame for it all was his father-in-law the Earl of Clarendon who was a Lord Chancellor and Mainly as a result of our defeat in the war, he was talked into. Well, he was told to surrender his great seal of office, and uh, there was just nothing left for him in England. And he fled to France, where he spent the rest of his life in exile. So, you know, James is jolly really lucky that you know, somebody else was around to take the blame.
4: Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, it was mainly down to the fact that they ran out of ammunition uh, was, uh, up in the castle on the line. So there was kind of that. Um, uh, it can't be the navy's fault because they just didn't have. No one supplied them with enough ammo. But um, it, he, James then went on to help start the uh, fortification process and the rebuilding of defences, which continued for another two hundred years.
5: That were in Medway anyway. James, right, yeah. So
3: he, yeah saved, well,
5: saved his reputation,
3: really. Yes. James had actually ordered that the Royal Charles be moved. In I think it was March. He he told Peter Pett. Who was uh, who's uh, head shipwright at Chatham? He told him to move the Royal Charles. So when it got unceremoniously towed away, he was apparently absolutely furious because his orders had been um, had been disobeyed. So, yeah. <laughs> But at that time, I mean, people didn't know I, the the people in London who are actually keeping an eye on what's happening at Chatham, they don't know what the Dutch are going to do. They don't know that they're they not going to turn round and try coming up the Thames into London. This could have been the attack. This could have been the full-scale invasion at that moment. But, um, yeah.
4: <laughs> they did well, occupy um, Shearness. They briefly, did. And then gave it back.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and apparently just before Sol Bay, um, the Dutch had tried... To go after Sheerness again, They tried to get back in, um, to get back into Chatham Docks again and got blocked off at, at Sheerness. Um, all good fun, all good fun stuff.: <laughs> well,
5: I guess, uh, quite a learning curve really, wasn't it? but uh, I think once the once defeats had come from the Dutch, then they realized that uh, excuse me, realized that the British Navy had to up their game after that.
3: They really did, and um, so yeah, Texel. Texel was another another sort of big disaster of the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and this is in this is in the 1670s, isn't it, John? That's
5: right. Yes. But, uh, uh, after after that, the, the Dutch uh, sort of rather ran out of stomach for the fight, and I, I think they realised that uh, no, most of the actions in that, that final war were more or less indecisive. The Dutch did slightly have the upper hand, but um, it's sort a of rather lost heart for it. Uh, Britain, obviously, was in no financial state to pursue the war. So um, it was just a sort of a fairly easy piece, but an uneasy one between the two countries.
3: Do you think this is one of the reasons why people don't generally know more about the Anglo-Dutch wars is the fact that it it wasn't conclusive um, and frankly, we didn't win, we didn't get that sort of great, glorious victory. Do you think that's one of the reasons why people don't really talk about the Anglo-Dutch Wars at all?
5: I think it probably is, yes. I suppose you could say it's a really not a very exciting war because, you know, we didn't win it, but then it was only a sort of well, fairly thin victory for the Dutch and there were no tremendous consequences from it because uh, uh, England was sort of rather caught between France and Holland at the time war with the Dutch largely because they wanted to protect its trade and and the Dutch were the supreme traders of the 17th century. Well, Britain wanted a bit of action over that. But on the other hand, Britain did have a vested interest in uh, trying to limit the power of France, which was regarded Mm -hmm. very much as the enemy at that time. Um, Of course, well, there there were exceptions because James was actually quite pro-French because that was a great Catholic nation, but but there was a lot of distrust of France, you know, throughout the British people and, and throughout the Protestant population, and to a certain extent Charles himself. So it was a, it was a very delicate balancing game.
3: It really was. Um, we've we've mentioned him. I'm gonna I'm gonna drag us back there because um, John, you'll you probably have picked up that this is my my favourite person in history. So Charles II was exceptionally popular as a monarch really he got away with a lot but even before he died there were moves to stop james from succeeding him in favor of monmouth now we're gonna have to talk a bit about monmouth um who who was the duke of monmouth and was the anti-james feeling really that strong that they'd put this person in in position before him
5: this is one of the great mysteries, I suppose, um, why um, how they actually man- managed to flock to the standard of, Mo- of Monmouth, or quite a lot of them, because you know he was uh, the illegitimate son of Charles II, poor old Charles, and uh, you know uh, Catherine of Braganza were not able to produce any legitimate heirs or heiresses, so you know, uh, Monmouth was the one, was the son of Charles by his mistress Lucy Walters, and. Uh, being quite popular they thought well monmouth is going to be you, you know very like father like son and you know, he could probably be molded quite well uh, as a king as as a figurehead james was not at all popular he was regarded as being very dour, very earnest mm-hmm. even though of course he was a he got mistresses aplenty but uh the picture of him was he was a bit of a gloomy moralizing convert really uh, pretty much out to spoil everybody's fun also he was a very much an advocate of pro-French and pro-Catholic policies, and this did not go down well at, at all in Britain as a whole. So you know, maybe Monmouth wasn't ideal because of uh, his illegitimacy, but uh, he, a lot of people saw him you know, as a rather better option.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: But, uh, Charles, but the important thing uh, running in the background all the time was that Charles II did regard the royal succession as sacrosanct, and he. Now he realised you know, his brother is his heir, and he shouldn't really do anything to supplant him. And uh, some of the ministers around him thought that he might possibly be amenable to pressure you know, to remove James from the succession and get Marm instead. But Charles did have very much this sense of fair play regarding the royal succession, and said no, James was the one, you no, know, for all his faults. Okay, he, he may be terribly pro Catholic, maybe rather pro French, but uh, that can be keeping him, kept in check. If,
1: uh... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner in nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
2: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The ministers uh, you know, do rein him in enough.
4: Mm-hmm. So, Charles ends up um, dissolving Parliament to uh, stop them passing a bill.
3: That's right, yes. He does. They, they yeah. wouldn't stop. They wouldn't stop calling for... For James to go, but I think that the logic was: is if they can pick their monarch now, what's to stop them doing it again and again? Oh,
5: yes. <laughs> yes. Well, yes, well, look at the Wars of the Roses, for instance. Uh, you know, when you, you had two, you know, two or three suitable candidates to, you know, to, to pick, you know, between the Yorkists and, and the Lancastrians. Mm. And I think also there's the, there was a feeling that. You know, the wars and roses that, that plunged the world's succession into chaos quite a lot. Well, sure enough, things had moved on in the last two hundred years or so, but they did not want any sort of crisis like that. So, you know, best rally around the most obvious candidate, candidate who was James.
3: Mm, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, wh- whatever you say about about Monmouth, he may he may or may not have been he may or may not have been Charles's legitimate son because there were rumours that that he may have married Lucy Walter in private and he was he was urged to say that he had definitely but James was undeniably the second son of Charles I it was there was no argument there
5: so
3: uh, done deal really done deal oh if only that would have been that would have made it much much easier but I think maybe part of the fact is that Monmouth was young and handsome and Protestant (laughs)
5: <laughs> and hopefully like his father and, uh, and uh, a good chap which uh, you know, James wasn't well footballer. I suppose James was a, you know, sort of very upright and earnest but yes. uh,
1: that
5: didn't happen but, <laughs> I mean it just, it just sort of take a more modern analogy you know, uh, Albert Prince Consort was a, you know, a very upright moral type but uh, quite frankly a, a bit of a bore and wasn't really you know, that popular Edward Seventh was a the business one with the mistresses but you know good old Teddy
3: Mm. you can't
5: have everything can you (laughs) (laughs) who do you choose choose? the good bloke or the really moral one
4: (laughs) (laughs) but but Monmouth Monmouth does sort of make a play for the crown um, by invading um, uh, coming in from Holland and invading the West Country whilst um, Argyle comes into Scotland and they lead two very popular, well, unpopular rebellions. They didn't attract that many soldiers, and it failed horrendously. James then dispatches apparently one of my ancestors, Judge Jeffreys, to go and deal with it, and it's put down very, very brutally. Um, How did the people react to this?
5: Well, I think up to a certain point, they were prepared to accept it because they couldn't do anything about it. But the thing that uh, really preserved them more than anything else was that James was probably becoming more inflexible. He saw that uh, there were revolts against him, not one, but but two, which could possibly have gone the other way if they had been better prepared and if more people had flocked to the the standards of Argyle or Monmouth. And he realised he had to be prepared for this. So uh, what did he do? He went and enlarged his standing army. Mm. Uh, People feared trouble from the soldiers in the army because uh, uh, they tended to be billeted on the towns and they would they would be greedy. They would cause trouble, and uh, you know, sort of no end of chaos. Also, it was contrary to English tradition you know, to keep a large professional army in peacetime because they felt there was really no need for it. Uh, a large army, well, uh, that, that meant they've got they got to prepare themselves for trouble ahead, which uh, might possibly not come. And it just uh, totally smacked of authoritarianism. So, so I, I suppose that, that you know that really was the main effect of the two rebellions. You know. You know, James just getting prepared in case you know, anything worse should happen later. Mm. And as we know, of course, it, well, worse for him from, from his point of view, it did it, it come from when, when William of Orange started stirring overseas.
3: Yeah, you've, you've made a, a really wonderful point in the book, which I, I picked up on, which is that perhaps Parliament would have been more prepared to overlook james's catholicism if it hadn't been for fear of what what you've you've described very neatly as um, the political side of catholicism which is absolutism and it seems that these two fears go hand in hand the fear of having a catholic monarch is hand in hand with having an absolute monarch who would rule absolutely he's got an army He doesn't have a parliament what he says goes and That seems to be what they're worried about. Do you think that's what James was trying to do?
2: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think so, yes.
5: I think there, there was this growing feeling that Catholicism equaled absolutism a preferment for Catholics in offices of state, and uh, they were going to take over the country. And you know, this is contrary to the, the the kind of English philosophy of live and let live. You know, equal rights for Catholics, equal, equal rights for Protestants. You know, don't go preferring one and at the expense of the other.
3: Yeah.
5: And uh, you know, obviously, James being you know, more and more becoming more obstinate and inflexible by the year. You know, he's just contrary to this. And uh, this is why his support gradually ebbed away.
3: And he's really he's really chipping away at what Parliament managed to get through in Charles's time. So every time Charles tried to pass indulgence to make it just just to make it easier for people to be Catholic, if they wanted to be um, every time he did it, the pushback was so extreme that they passed in 1673, 1674, the Test Act, which meant that no, no Catholic could hold high office. And James at that point had to resign from the Navy, but he's, he hasn't managed to unpick it, but he's very much going against it this time, isn't he?
5: Yes. Well, He saw that he, no, he was on rather slippery ground. And I think part of his plan was just to uh, sit back and see how things panned out. That's a, you know, but then later on we had the Exclusion Acts coming on and you know, he realised that, you know, that things, things might not go his way. So it was, it was partly a matter of luck that he did in the end.
3: So things start going from, from bad to worse for James at this time with something rather wonderful. Yeah. So he's, yeah. he's building this army. He's got um, a lot of Catholics in his privy, council and in high office so there's clearly preferment for catholics and then something lovely happens he has a son and this <laughs> proves a major spark for the revolution which is going to going to come so tell us a little bit about the birth of james's son why it was controversial and why this made revolution inevitable
5: well james and mary had not had much luck in trying to raise a family so far because there had been a lot of miscarriages, stillbirths, you know, princes and princesses, and uh, you know, they were both quite desperate about it. And suddenly it seemed an absolute miracle in 1687 when they realized that uh, Queen Mary was with child. And uh, of course, obviously a lot could go wrong and a lot had gone wrong with the previous pregnancies, but a living son was born in, in June 1688. And it was, a, you know, this uh, took a lot of people by surprise. And some people immediately thought, "Could hmm, be dirty." <laughs> Has he been Back struggling? <laughs> a warming pan? Uh, you, know, what, you know, was there a stillborn infant, and they managed to uh, to somebody in while nobody was looking? But there was quite a suspicion about this. That this might have happened, and uh, it coincided with a. With The trial of the seven bishops uh, you know, you know, who, contrary to the king 's expectations, were, uh, were exonerated from all blame. The bishops t- of totally you know, innocent of the trial, and that uh, coinciding with the fact that uh, there was this rather suspicious prince of Wales, they thought this child had been foisted on them, and also they had been prepared to regard um, James and his Catholic policies as being a bit of a temporary phenomenon, those have soon passed away, because uh, um, next in succession to the throne was his daughter Mary, and then her sister Anne, because uh, Mary was childless. So they thought, okay, right, we'll by our time. James is getting quite elderly. He's in his mid-50s. He's probably not going to live much longer. But the birth of the son completely changed that. They, they thought they knew right, the son would follow him on the throne. Uh, this is where we we start taking action and that was when the negotiations with William of Orange started you know, would, would he come over and invade so he, was, uh, he was married to, to Mary so
1: mm. he was
5: a, like a, a sort of heir in waiting as well and uh, that was when James really started unraveling quite
3: fast. I mean far be it from me to perpetuate 300 year old rumours but I've I've looked into, this is again, this is something I find very interesting. And I've looked into the various pregnancies of Mary of Modena, James's wife. And she, she falls pregnant pretty much the minute she comes over and they're married. So there's a lot of, a lot of, um, she buries a lot of children. There are a lot of miscarriages. It's all incredibly painful, especially when you think of how young she was. So when she had her, her first child, she was 17 years old. And um she buried that first child when she was 18. so this is this is all awful stuff, and it, it so it goes on, so it goes on through through 1674, 1675 and she's pretty much conceiving every year um, sometimes she is having babies they they aren't making it to adulthood um some of them are stillborn there are miscarriages and like i say it's all it's all incredibly painful to read but the birth of the prince the little the little prince that we're talking about he comes after a break of 3 years and 3 months without any sign of any pregnancy so you can kind of see why people would think hang on this this all feels very convenient. And in your book, you said that Mary was she was very reluctant to let anybody inspect her, anyone to see her belly, and even Princess Anne may have had her suspicions as well.
5: Yes, yeah, so it was all, so I suppose rather, yeah, rather unfairly stacked up against her. Mm. You know, maybe she wasn't playing her cards right, but. He, he, Quite understand you know why she's why she's being so cautious about it that's uh yes it just just looks rather too good to be true from her point of view and you know it's hardly surprising that you know, people people smell the rats really yeah
3: it's really interesting and i i was like I say i was reading your book and i was thinking i'm trying to weigh up all all the evidence that's presented and you mentioned that, of course, as would be standard for a Queen of England, she doesn't get to give birth quietly on her own. There were yeah. there were thirty witnesses. I understand. <laughs> do we know who they were?
5: Members of the household and uh, some of the senior officers of the state. Yeah, they're just to give some sort of legitimacy to the, you
3: know, the whole performance. What but do you think, Chris? Does be. this sound dodgy to you?
4: Yeah, they do sound like they the people that could easily be um influenced to uh to say a certain thing, to say oh yeah yeah we saw it yeah
3: yeah absolutely definitely but then there were rumors that maybe maybe she had given birth but that that child had had sadly died and they'd yes. smuggled in a replacement
5: so they've got one one in waiting just in case
3: <laughs> gosh <laughs> Damn
5: um
4: so J- but james does ultimately fall in the in the in the um glorious revolution and but that's not it for him and um he then goes into goes on to ireland to try and raise an army to retake the two kingdoms which obviously goes wrong with the battle of the boyne but uh, was this just uh, a death throw or a last roll of the dice was there any ever any real chance of him regaining the throne um then
5: not really, because uh, James was very reluctant, and you know he was in two minds. You know, you know even even while he's fleeing England, you know, at the end of sixteen eighty eight, so he was very much. Well, one moment he thought, well, why right, I don't I just stay and fight this out? And then the next moment he thought, well, no, I've got, you know, I've, 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 I've lost. I, I might just as well carry on to France, um, and then, you no, know, that this is about invading Ireland. Now, his heart wasn't in it, you know, he was getting quite elderly at this t- time, and there are also theories that possibly he might have, uh, know, had some kind of you know, whatever the 17th century equivalent of uh, you know, dementia was. My, so oh, wow. yes, he was, yes, he was in his uh, mid to late 50s at this time, which is really quite old for the, the late 17th century, and uh, you know, he just didn't want to be bothered, he'd far rather uh, spend the rest of his. Time in exile in France, but it's really Louis the Fourteenth who got behind him, who persuaded him. Look, you owe this to your wife and your your son. Are you going to throw their inheritance away? Uh, Invade Ireland? You've got a reasonable chance of success. You will have French troops to help you, mm. and so, you, know, you, you could very well uh, put the disaster of 1688 right again. So, uh, so they had a go, but uh, the Irish army was very large, but mostly untrained, very poorly armed. William's forces were, were smaller, but they were far superior and it was a, a really kind of David and Goliath situation. You know, Back of the Boyne came and uh, you know, James actually stood watching it from a hill because he didn't get involved. And uh, once you saw that you know, it wasn't going his way, then you know, he, that was really when he gave up the fight. So uh, I, I don't think anybody really had much chance of success at all
3: i mean we've we've skipped over a, a little bit here i mean in talking about what has become called the glorious revolution was it really that simple did did england just say hey william mary get over here we don't want this king anymore and it just switched was no they, they call it bloodless but that can't be right it
5: wasn't completely bloodless um Yes, that, that is a little bit of an exaggeration, a bit of a simplification, because there was quite a lot of violence going on you know, you know between the, the waters of both sides, and there were a couple of small battles. There was one in Somerset, there was one near Reading, but so we've only got very sketchy accounts of those. They were nothing like on the scale of the Battle of Sedgemoor, for instance. And uh, as far as we know, you know, there were a few casualties, but uh, how many were there? Uh, you know, we don't know. It may have possibly been as few of a dozen as a dozen. Might possibly have been about fifty or sixty people killed, mm. uh, but uh, you know, by and large, uh, you know, the English welcomed William of Orange. Uh, and said, "Yes, yes, come over, come, come and save us from this extreme <laughs> Catholic." And, in, and another thing that sort of slightly complicated and simplified at the same time was, you know, they were keeping it in the family because you know, William was, after all, uh, James's son-in-law, you know, Mary being his wife, and so it was a Really, a case of uh, okay, let's um, yeah, let's let's hand it on to uh, James's next heir. But obviously, it's got to be legitimised. Mm. So William and his forces invaded, and uh, James gave up with you know, hardly a fight at all. Gosh,
3: I think people forget as well that that William was also he was also a Stuart. He was he was James's nephew oh, yes. as well as his <laughs> son-in-law.
5: <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's almost all, well, all, all, all <laughs> way. <laughs>
3: And everyone's got the same name because, of course, because William's mother was also called Mary, and she was James's right. sister.
4: <laughs> it makes it so much easier.
3: And she married William, so his, pa- his parents were William and Mary, and he was William, and his wife was Mary. It's it's just they just do it to be awkward, don't they?
5: Who says <laughs> they do? Yes. <laughs> uh, but so. Uh, w- but so uh, William showed that uh, you know he he wasn't going to be a be a tyrant. You know he was going to be fairly flexible, and he knew that uh, you know he he did rather owe his position uh, as king, you know, to making sure he did what Parliament told him to. So there were a lot of safeguards on royal power at that time, and you know, to that extent, it was you know to, uh, fairly amicable.
4: So it's kind of a complete reversal to uh, James's rule, and that I mean they also get rid of a lot of the the ministers that have pro James as well. Um, but yeah, so William does a complete um,
5: U-turn. Indeed, yes.
3: Gosh. And that's not even going into yeah. the number of people who must have literally sold James out. He must, his his oh, army gosh. and his commanders must have turned coat very quickly when they realised he was not going to fight.
5: They did. They, they, they realised that you know, he'd obviously got no stomach for the fight. So... Um... So, so they made their peace with the new regime. Uh, the Duke of Warburg, for instance, was, was one of them. You know, he, he did you think, have a bit of a soft spot in his heart for James, but he realised that uh, um, you know, obviously it, it made more sense to, to throw this lot in with the winning side.
3: So this would be John Churchill, uh, James's former protege, selling out his patron. And everyone wonders why I think John Churchill wasn't a very nice person. <laughs>
5: <laughs> uh, he wasn't the only one, there were, were a lot of them because uh, you obviously, you have know, you, got, got to sail with the tide, you, you don't sail against it.
3: Oh, I, think, I think that's very fair. I think you're being very kind to him there, John.
5: <laughs> well, it, it, well it, it, it was quite a division on family lines, wasn't it? Because it uh, was uh, uh, Princess Anne who later became queen. Uh, you know, she was uh, very much torn between you know, her sister and her father, but eventually so mm. she, she realised, well, uh, her father, unfortunately, is one who is uh, sowing the seeds of dissension. Uh, so, somewhat reluctantly, you know, you know, she went and threw in her lot with sister and brother-in-law. I mean, wh- what else could the poor woman do?
3: I think, yeah, exactly. Just I think if you're putting that position. What are you going to do? I'm going to let Chris ask the next next question because I know he's a fan of fan of all things Polish. Go on, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's going to get me in trouble. Um, yeah, so. Um, <laughs> Well, when, um, when James is in exile, um, he very interestingly gets offered a, a new job opportunity in the form of King of Poland. Um, but he turns it down because he worries it's going to affect uh, the legitimacy of his son's attempts to regain the, the English crown. But would he have made a decent King of Poland?
5: Well, it probably wouldn't have really been much more more than a figurehead, really. I think, particularly after his uh, difficult experiences in, in England, uh, Poland was a, a much smaller kingdom, and you know didn't really carry a lot of weight on the uh, the European stage. So, I think he would probably have been largely in the hands of his ministers. You know quite how obstinate he would have been you know, in trying to impose his arbitrary will on everybody uh, that we don't know. But um, I think there again we've got this, this sort of aging thing. You know, he would have been nearly 60 by then and, you know, he would have... I think it would have been just, you know, very much of a non-entity. And... Uh, but, but uh, as you know, he he rejected the idea in, entirely because he did not want to spoil what little chances his son, James, might possibly have had of succeeding in William the Third. So he was a, a, a bit of a non-sequitur, really. Didn't, didn't really get anywhere very really far. Gosh.
3: I mean, talking about... James's heirs would be a—that's a whole, whole other episode. But what what happens to James? What becomes of him?
5: James went to live at Saint Germain en laye uh, near Paris, very much as a sort of uh, a guest of Louis the Fourteenth. He just passed his time mostly in the, in prayer, devotions, reading the Bible, reading the sort of Rob the dull life, <laughs> well, sort of dull. Un- well, un- and eventually, I suppose he probably had his, his share of adventure after all. And uh, you know, Queen Mary was uh, quite content with it. You no, know, she obviously didn't have much opportunity to, to do anything else. But uh, you know, by this time, he was uh, was becoming quite ill. You know, had, had several several illnesses, and you know, he, he died at the age of. Oh, he was uh, a yeah, so, Sixty-seven, died in seventeen O one, and uh, that was just the end of it. But I think he was uh, probably fairly happy to uh, give up his earthly fights and
3: mm.
5: maybe accepted death quite passively. And so, <laughs> <I> feel, it <laughs> feels feels so,
3: like quite a sad ending, almost, doesn't it? Yeah, sort
5: of quiet. Yeah, well, obviously, we know uh, other post monarchs have uh, ended up far worse than he ever did. Look at Paul Louis the Fourteenth. Right, a hundred years later, look at son Nicholas II. No, anyway, in Paris, by comparison with them, he he got off uh, quite lightly.
4: Or, or even comparing him to his father. Um, <laughs> but I mean, which I'm going to have to yeah. kind of do anyway, because um, he seems to have repeated all the same errors his father made of you know um, disregarding Parliament, imposing the divine right of kings, as such. Would it be fair to Summarise that he did. Sur- surmise that he did just repeat his father's mistakes and was therefore doomed to failure.
5: I think he largely did because, uh, you no, know, he had his father's obstinacy. Uh, he was a king, believed in the divine right of kings, and uh, uh, just felt that, uh, you no, know, he was untouchable. Whereas Charles II, you know, by complete contrast, he was just an easygoing one who, uh, who let the world shape itself around him, and uh, well. Uh, well, he he wasn't prepared to go against Parliament. You know, he wasn't going to go on his travels again. He just thought uh, anything for an easy life. Mm. And, uh, mm. and and he was one who actually actually died a king. So <laughs>
3: <laughs> he saw so, yes, it coming it was, with James, didn't he? Charles saw yes. he saw this coming with James.
5: Yes. Well yes, he did. he did, and I suppose it. Well. <laughs> He just felt it was his duty to do what was right, even if it did cost him his crown, which uh, of course it did, fairly soon. Yeah.
3: Amazing. Well, your lovely book, John James II and the First Modern Revolution, is published by Pen and Sword. So we're going to try and get that available on the uh, History Hack Bookstore, so that people can can pick it up. Thank you so much for joining us, John van der Kist. We look forward to seeing what you write next.
5: Absolutely. Yes, I have got more books on the way.
3: <laughs> oh yes, are you going? Are you going to? Because I know you write about popular music as well as uh, as well as fantastic historical things.
5: I do. Yes, yeah. so those are my main parallels. Um, on the historical side, um, I've got William the Fourth coming up next. Uh huh. And Ooh. I've got Queen Victoria's daughters-in-law coming up after that. So I'm just finishing that off. But so, I'm, I also do books on, on rock music, so mostly concentrated on the 70s. Um,
1: I've,
5: I've got one coming out, I think, probably, uh, we April, aren't we? Yeah, later on this one. I've got one, one coming out on, on Free and Bad Company.
3: Oh, Paul Rogers. Love him.
5: Oh, that's right, yes. One of the great British vocals. I've just had one published on Mott Hoopal and Ian Hamza. <laughs> and, and I'm currently writing one on Manfred Mann's Earth Band.
3: That sounds absolutely That's That's
5: fantastic. A, a, a eclectic selection.
3: <laughs> we, we love eclectic people here at History Hack. Chris, thank you for being my wingman today. It's been brilliant fun. Anytime. And thank you, John. <laughs> well,
5: thank you very much indeed, Charlie. It's, it's been lovely. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash historyhack. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support. And here's to your next great
2: book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus.